Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Honduras Now podcast. I am your host, Karen Spring. I am a human rights activist, researcher, and the Honduras-based coordinator for the Honduras Solidarity Network. I've lived in Honduras for almost 11 years now. We created the Honduras Now podcast to share human rights stories from Honduras and connect them with global issues and North American policy. Welcome and thanks so much for listening. Today is a special day. It is the 11th anniversary of the 2009 military coup in Honduras. The music you're listening to is from the Honduran artist Carla Lara, and it's called The Resistance Hymn. Just listening to this song transforms many Hondurans back to the streets of Honduras and reminds them 11 years ago today, June 28, 2009, when President Manuel Zelaya was overthrown in a U.S. and Canadian-backed military coup. A coup, or a coup d'état, is the forcible removal of an existing government from power. Typically, it is an illegal, unconstitutional seizure of power by a political faction, the military, or a dictator. Many Hondurans didn't fully realize a coup was taking place in the morning of June 28, 2009. These are voices of Hondurans that were in Tegucigalpa the morning of the coup. That morning when we woke up, I heard planes flying over the neighborhood where I lived. People were running and scared on the street close to my house. A group of people came by and asked me if I knew what was going on. Information started coming out that a coup d'etat had happened and that the president had disappeared, but we didn't know what had happened to him. There were rumors that he had been killed. There was a general sense of uncertainty and there were lots of military in the streets. I turned my radio on and all the radio stations had no signal, but there was one radio, it was Radio Globo, a radio that completely different than everybody else because all the radio stations are controlled by the same business people in Honduras. They had in the news that the Mel Zelaya was visited at his house by the militaries, get him out of his house, took it away from Teusigalpa. That was the beginning of coup d'etat. Many Hondurans were excited to wake up that day. They were supposed to go to the polls to participate in a nationwide referendum where they were being asked whether they wanted to add a cuarta urna or a fourth ballot box to the elections happening later on in that same year, in November 2009. Now, what was the fourth ballot box? The fourth ballot box would have been added to the three other usual ballots where Hondurans voted for a president, their congressional representatives, and their municipal authorities in their general elections. The fourth ballot was going to ask voters whether they wanted to hold a national constituent assembly to draft a new constitution. This was a major political project of President Zelaya, and it received support from many sectors of Honduran society, sectors that had traditionally been excluded from the political decision-making in the country for decades. Many saw hope in the rewriting of the Honduran constitution, but for many others in Honduras, especially the wealthy 10 to 12 families that hold significant and major economic and political power in the country, they did not like this idea. They were happy with the status quo. So on the morning of June 28, 2009, instead of waking up to participate in a nationwide referendum, Hondurans discovered slowly that their president had been overthrown in a coup. After the lights came back on, then we went to a peaceful gathering outside of the presidential palace. 
We were a group of around 20 people, and when we got there, there were fences and a large number of soldiers, theoretically protecting the presidential house at that time. The military began to try to disperse us with tear gas. I think it was the first time that I felt the effects of tear gas. We started running because there was practically a war breaking out near the presidential house. And that was the beginning of our nightmares after the coup. Since then, we, we've been on the streets fighting against the groups of power that control the government, to control the, uh, all the institutions by the force of the weapons of the arms. Now, President Zelaya wasn't perfect, and many doubted his intentions. He was, after all, from a wealthy family in eastern Honduras and was part of the traditional Liberal Party, with a past of defending the interests of the powerful and the wealthy. So what did happen to President Zelaya that morning? The Honduran military broke into his house in the wee hours of the morning, held him at gunpoint, forced him out of his house in his pajamas. Before being flown out of the country, President Zelaya was first taken to the U.S. military base called Sotocano, or Pomerola, just north of Honduras's capital city. President Zelaya describes arriving to Pomerola the morning of the coup in an article written by Honduran journalist Fred Alvarado. The first stop the plane made was in Pomerola. When they seized me in my house and took me to the plane, they threatened me both verbally and with their guns. As I arrived in Pomerola, I looked out the window and saw troops moving people running. I couldn't tell if they were Honduran or foreign troops, but I knew I was in Pomerola. Now, the U.S. has long claimed that they did not know that the coup was going to happen, and they certainly deny all involvement. But this just can't be true. Even just thinking about President Zelaya's plane landing in Pomerola raises serious doubt. In the years I've lived in Honduras, I've dropped by the gates of Pomerola, and guess who is guarding the entrance? U.S. military soldiers. Sure, there are Honduran soldiers there as well, but it's really clear who is in charge at the main gates when you go to seek permission to enter. So how is it possible that a plane carrying a president that is being held by gunpoint by military, where there are 500 to 600 U.S. soldiers stationed at all times? It seems highly unlikely. But really, what was going on in Pomerola that day is besides the point. A year later, and to date, Zelaya continues to insist that the United States government was behind the coup d'etat. President Zelaya explains this in an interview with Telesur on June 29, 2010. We can say clearly that after all the analysis, the proof, the evidence that we have one year later, we can affirm categorically that the U.S. was behind the coup and they continue to cover it up, protecting the people that usurping the civil power of our country with the force of arms and continue covering it up and seeking impunity for them. Now, if you ask me, the U.S. absolutely knew the coup was going to happen, if not participated in it. There isn't much direct proof of that, but it became crystal clear when less than five months later, after the coup, the then Secretary of State of the United States, Hillary Clinton, wanted to brush it all under the rug and totally legitimize a completely illegitimate election. Then the U.S. proceeded to dump millions of dollars into training, arming, and expanding the intelligence capabilities of the Honduran police, military, and the intelligence structures of the Honduran state security forces. 
Now, I was on the street with the Honduran people in protests every single day from mid-July 2009 when I first got to Honduras right up until the 2009 elections and after. After the coup, the largest social movement, first called the National Front Against the Coup d'État, was formed, and then it grew into the National Front of Popular Resistance, or the FNRP, by its Spanish acronym. Now, the FNRP was huge. It was all over the country, and it was tens of thousands of people huge. And they were all in the streets, every single day, protesting, getting shot at, tear gas, arrested, and bunkering down when the coup regime imposed military curfews, and no one was allowed to leave their house. I don't think there is one Honduran social movement leader that believes the United States government was not involved in the June 2009 coup d'etat. Listen to what Berta Cáceres told in an interview aired by Democracy Now! on March 11, 2016. We're coming out of a coup that we can't put behind us. We can't reverse it. It just kept going. And after, there was the issue of the elections. The same Hillary Clinton, in her book Hard Choices, practically said what was going to happen in Honduras. This demonstrates the meddling of North Americans in our country. The return of the president, Mel Zelaya, became a secondary issue. There were going to be elections in Honduras. And he or she, Clinton, recognized that they didn't permit Mel Zelaya's return to the presidency. There were going to be elections. And the international community, officials, the government, the grand majority accepted this, even though we warned this was going to be very dangerous and that it would permit a barbarity, not only in Honduras, but in the rest of the continent. And we've been witnesses to this. When I first got to Honduras, I wondered why wealthy and powerful Honduran families, or the golpistas as they were called, and the United States and Canadian governments wanted President Zelaya out of power. It would take me a few years to really understand this. In his time in office, President Zelaya took baby steps to support the country's poor and working class. He did things like raising the minimum wage. He began negotiating with small farmers that had been fighting for years to recover land for farming that had been taken away from them by large large, internationally financed African palm companies. President Zelaya gave Honduran teachers better benefits and better wages. And then he also joined ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our Americas, which to many, including Washington, signaled a close relationship with Venezuela and Cuba. This was not welcomed by the United States. But there were other things President Zelaya did that really had practical, everyday impacts on people's lives. I remember moving into a new house in Honduras in 2013, four years after the military coup, and changing a burnt-out light bulb. When I removed it, I was told that it was one of the light bulbs that President Zelaya's administration had handed out in mass numbers during his administration. His government wanted people to use energy-efficient light bulbs to help them cut down their energy costs. President Zelaya's reforms had far-reaching and practical everyday impacts in the lives of the country's poor majority. Apparently, because of these small reforms, the Honduran business class did not like these changes. This is Al Jazeera's reporting from the streets of San Pedro Sula on July 1, 2009. Others say that Manuel Zelaya was a threat to democracy, too easily influenced by left-wing governments like Venezuela and trying to modify the constitution to remain in power. Seeking a second presidential term has been forbidden by the Honduran constitution. In fact, up until a few years ago, it was a crime to even talk about seeking a second term. So with this justification, the Honduran golpistas and the Western media began to paint Zelaya as a dictator. 
Now, the accusation that President Zelaya was seeking a second term was untrue. And eight years later, after the coup, in 2017, it would become a laughable accusation when President Juan Orlando Hernandez, the current president and a strong U.S. ally, would seek a second term and all the people that accused President Zelaya in 2009 of doing just that would stay absolutely silent. But immediately after the coup, nevertheless, Honduras was completely divided. This is Al Jazeera. On one side, the rural mixed indigenous population who favor their ousted president. And on the other, an often wealthier group who are content he has been removed. Canada and the United States became the biggest supporters of the de facto government of Honduras when it took over the country as a result of the coup. The coup would later be called the biggest historical event that plunged the country into a deep political, economic, and humanitarian crisis that still has not ended 11 years later. I remember being disgusted by the Canadian and U.S. response. In 2009, the then Canadian Minister of State, Peter Kent, consistently repeated that all parties needed to show restraint and negotiate a peaceful solution to the crisis in the country. A peaceful solution, I thought? When a democratically elected president is rushed out of the country by gunpoint, then when protesters hit the streets to protest, they're shot at, killed, tear gassed. The Canadian Globe and Mail newspaper reported shortly after the coup that Canada was still providing training to members of the Honduran army, even though a coup had happened. The Canadian National Defense confirmed that the Canadian government had maintained its military training assistance program with Honduras, which allegedly provides language and so-called peacekeeping training to soldiers. So you're probably wondering, why does she keep talking about Canada as well? Isn't the United States the superpower? Isn't it the United States that defines what happens in Honduras? Well, Yes, and it's a really good question. Well, first, I'm Canadian, so I'm always looking for the role that Canada plays, as well as the role of the United States. But it doesn't give you the whole picture to just focus on the role of the United States, because the United States receives a lot of support from governments like Canada, governments like Taiwan, and all around the world. U.S. allies support what the United States does, and they often buffer U.S. foreign policy in Honduras. There are a lot of governments that are complicit with what the United States does in Latin America. America. So I've given you a brief overview of the coup and the U.S. and Canadian role. But today is the 11th anniversary of the coup, and Hondurans around the country are on lockdown. In fact, Hondurans are on a lockdown similar to the lockdowns imposed during the coup and then again in 2017. But this time the lockdown is because of the global pandemic, which of course is a health crisis on top of an economic, political, and humanitarian crisis that has been growing since the coup in Honduras. So in the next episode, I'm going to put the coup in context now that we're 11 years later. What does the coup mean now? Now that Honduras is going through the COVID-19 crisis and the healthcare system had collapsed even before the pandemic began. In the next episode, I'll play excerpts from Hondurans around the country that describe their thoughts on the current context. Here is one from the well-known labor and social movement leader and before the 2009 coup, the independent candidate for president, Carlos Humberto Reyes. Diré que el capitalismo y su modelo Capitalism and the neoliberal model continues in crisis, and with COVID-19, the health crisis has deepened even more, because the market cannot resolve the crisis. It's up to the state to resolve it. But in the case of Honduras, where there is a corrupt dictator associated with drug trafficking, the state can't because the creditors have the government on its knees, and they have to borrow more money. 
So the pandemic is a political problem that the dictatorship cannot resolve. That was Carlos Sache, who we will hear from next week. You can find the show notes for this episode at HondurasNow.org. Oh, and I must mention, starting this show with Carla Lara's resistance hymn was an idea I borrowed from Honduran journalist Felix Molina, who is now exiled in Canada, but who led a radio show for years after the coup. I included a link to Carla's beautiful song in the show notes. So please check out HondurasNow.org. And while you're there, sign up for our list and get the episodes right to your inbox. If you have any episode ideas or requests, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Stay tuned. Stay healthy. Thanks so much for listening. Defendiendo tu santa bandera y en tus pliegues gloriosos.